You're listening to Stories But Shorter, recorded at Wholesome Studio B1 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm your host, Cassie Jerkins. Today we have on S.L. Weisenberg. this a while ago and so I need to explain some of the references. Um, this takes place during the Reagan administration and I think some people think he was great because they've forgotten how awful he was. During the Reagan administration there was the um, there were problems in Central America. Uh, there were rev- there was a revolution in Nicaragua And under Reagan, the government supported the anti-revolutionary people who were called the Contras. So you'll hear something about Contra funding. In El Salvador, there was the FDR, which has nothing to do with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was the Frente Democrático Revolucionario, which was a coalition of organizations Uh, Harold Washington was mayor of Chicago from 1983 to 1987, the first black mayor. He died in office. You will need to know that the rabbit was a car, was a Volkswagen car. If you're not from Chicago, you need to know that the jewel is the grocery store. And those of you who are, I guess, millennials, you'll have to remember that there was a time when there was no internet and no cell phones. So that's why these people are calling each other all the time instead of texting. Okay, S.L. Weisenberg, brunch. When Bruce has brunch, he makes two trips to the jewel, then sits at his beat up table and tells me, CC, there are no happy couples, only people who haven't broken up yet. Then he jumps up to check the Nicaraguan drip-grind decaf and runs back to the store and thinks up puns about locks. When Bruce makes brunch, he could invite Barry, but he can't invite Barry if he invites me, because since we broke up, I won't see Barry. And Bruce has to give me first dibs on all invitations because I've known him since before we knew anybody else. Bruce and I met at O'Hare, First day in town for both of us. He doesn't even ask if he can invite Barry. He knows. And if he did ask, I'd turn around and say, if I had a brunch, could I invite Sally? Only it's not the same, because since March, Sally's been living in D.C. Now Bruce is planning a brunch, and I ask if Sam's coming. Bruce says no, that he's got that conference in Carolina on religion and the left, and he'll be back Monday. Bruce doesn't know about Sam and me. If Sam came to brunch, I wouldn't leave, but would probably try to ignore each other at first, then talk a little too loud and laugh a little too hard and lecture a little too much and finally have a tight whispered conversation in the kitchen. We'd tell people we were talking strategy. Most of us met through coalitions. Bruce knows Barry from the fight against Contra aid. Bruce was a liaison to the Quakers. Barry was a liaison from the Quakers. The first time Barry said he loved me was at a conference on the sanctuary movement. When we broke off, I said, you take the religious task force, 
I'll take Fellowship of Reconciliation. When Bruce and Sally broke up, they were working on Harold Washington's election out of the North Side campaign office. Sally moved down to the South Side office. She refused to help at training sessions for deputy voter registrars because she knew Bruce and his friends would be running it. She voted absentee so she wouldn't see anybody she knew at the polling place. With each breakup, our territories get smaller and smaller. I do solidarity work with Central American labor unions, but now only ones in Guatemala and Honduras. When Barry and I broke up, he refused to give up El Salvador. He writes to the FDR leaders in Spanish. In his Spanish for Progressives class, he met Brenda. She runs a third world trading outfit and used to live with Ben. They met on Washington's first campaign for mayor. They believe that monogamy is bourgeois. I think she and Barry sleep together occasionally. I don't think either removes their woven friendship bracelets for the disappeared in Guatemala. I don't take mine off when I sleep. No one was wearing them back then when I met Bruce. The disappeared weren't disappeared yet, or we didn't know yet. Word hadn't filtered back to us. Sally used to wear hers even when we went swimming. Barry had his before I met him. I think some Buddhists gave it to him when he protested at the UN. In the middle of the old days, Barry and I would have brunch and invite Bruce, Sally, Brenda, Ben, Alan, Helen, Art, Krista, Mark, Esther, Liz, Frank. We didn't hang out with Sam. Now Krista and Art are divorced. Liz and Frank are engaged. Brenda and Ben are an occasional. The rest aren't speaking. Barry has my skis and skates, and on the phone we discuss his returning them in exchange for his socks and second best tennis racket. He gets mad because I won't talk with him about this in person, so I don't make brunch. Once there was a time when I didn't know all of them, but I hardly remember it. I get calls from that time, from Ajax. He's out in California making bookcases. I wait for him to want me back. He tells me about his kids. I know you can't erase kids. Barry doesn't want me back. Bruce doesn't want Sally back. Krista doesn't want Art back. Helen doesn't want Alan back. Mark wants Esther back, but is too proud to say so. Brenda and Ben still talk free love. On weekends, I see Krista and Alan and Tom, or Art and Jan and Esther, but never Krista and Art, or Jan and Alan, or Helen. We can't go to anyone's old favorite restaurants, so we go to new places no one likes all that much. Before fundraisers, we make extensive calls to determine who will be there. On the L, I think, I will see someone I know, or that man over there will fall for me. Barry sees Sam on the L. They talk baseball and nerve gas legislation. On weekends, Barry goes camping in Michigan. He doesn't take anyone to his fundraising dinners, doesn't mention my name anymore at work, doesn't have anyone to call my little June bug. I don't know why he started calling me that. He'd write it on letters say it into my answering machine, buy me bugs made of licorice or chocolate. He'd send me cards showing sweet domestic scenes in color on the front 
and inside on the blank part he'd write, to my one, my only, bed bug. On weekends, I call Sally in Washington, or she calls me. We talk about Bruce. I don't tell her about Sam and me. Three weeks. Three Saturday nights ago, after the benefit at the Heartland Cafe for Nicaraguan medical aid, weather was a bit warmer than tonight even. We were, we were sitting on Sam's porch. I said, it's nice out here. Sam said, you look pretty. He said, you fascinate me. He twirled the curls at the back of my neck. He frightened me. Fascination, I thought. Awe? I can't live with awe. But I did. I hung in. Two weeks later, he said, I bit off too much. I confess I hadn't expected. He said, it's not the right time. I am not the right person at the right time. I was not the right person for Sam, Barry, Theo, or Helen. Tom and Ajax were not the right people for me. Sally was not the right person for Bruce. I am 29, Helen is 28, Bruce is 32, and has worked in three presidential campaigns. Sally is 28, Barry and Theo are both 30, Sam is 34, Ben is 35, Brenda's 31, Chris is 27, Art is 40, Mark is 35, Esther is 30, Liz is 34, Tom is 35, Michael the sculptor is a month and a day younger than Sally. Ajax is 38. BB, his new girlfriend, is 20. Back when my sister Ellen and I were little, before either of us had ever had a boyfriend, we would ask each other, if you had to marry somebody now, who would it be? Who would it be? Would it be Bruce, Sam, or Barry, or Ajax, or Tom? Maybe Sam, because it would be a challenge to make him grow to love me, like he said he did three Saturday nights ago. It's the challenge that people accept when they adopt a dog from the SPCA that's termed a discipline problem, thinking, not me, I'll be the one who tames it. Would it be Barry? No, because he would grow abrupt. He would be impatient and refuse counseling. It was Sally who introduced me to Barry. She'd met him through Michael the Sculptor, and she'd met Michael at a New Year's Eve party put on by Artists Against Racism. When she came back to visit this summer, she showed me the house where the party had been. Or so she thought. She wasn't sure. She'd been drunk. Nine years before. Every time we passed a yellow rabbit, she said, I wonder if that's the car I sold when I left here. Once I was going to be her maid of honor. She was going to marry Bruce. She bought a mid-calf length tea dress, pinky peach with lace. Then he decided he didn't want anything for life though he still wanted to live with her. She left for six months and came back for two years before leaving for good. During that six months, she went around the world. One afternoon, she was on a boat in Indonesia. She turned and saw a man sitting on a bench on deck in three-quarters profile. He looked like Michael, Michael the sculptor from her early 20s, whom she'd met on New Year's Eve and had left by May because he was jealous of her time. The man on the bench was asleep, and he slept like Michael, head thrown back, arms out. Sally cried for two hours. When she describes this to me, her voice still breaks.
Thank you so much for sharing brunch. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. Of course. Um, so we always begin the talk back with like talking about like what maybe inspired you to write this story. Um, was there like a part of the story that maybe you were charmed by and then you started there and then turned it into a full story? Characters? It was my life at a certain time uh -huh. when everybody was sleeping with everybody and everybody was on the left. And um, I exaggerated things and made it a little more stylized. Mm -hmm. But um, there is there was a friend who had a brunch. And I think he gave me his shopping list from the brunch. <laughs> and I, I've had a writing group for a really long time. And we used to have writing prompts, which I hated. Mm -hmm. It was like, here's an idea. And everybody write for five or 10 minutes. But one time we did a prompt and I got the idea of people dividing up Central American countries. Mm. Like, oh, I can't work for El Salvador anymore because my old boyfriend works for El Salvador, <laughs> so I'm going to run into him. So it was all these, um, you know, activists. I wanted to say first world problems, mm -hmm. but I think everybody has romantic problems. Sure, yeah. Um, it's just a little more brought into relief because these people are really trying to do good for other people mm -hmm. and yet they are very concerned about their own love lives yeah <laughs> yeah there's something funny about trying to do good in the world and then yeah having to be like i can't do an entire country because of this one person um, right right to hell with those people you know? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i can't help them anymore you know because it's too hard mm-hmm uh, and it's so great that you brought this piece in because we've had a few uh, authors come on and bring in work that um, talks more about like current like Trump uh, mm. <laughs> issues and like kind of like politics today. So to have a story about like the Reagan era and everything, do you personally see like like history repeating itself or similarities or do you think it's worse today than it was then? I think it's a lot worse now. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time of Reagan, though, people knew it was bad. Yeah. And people protested. There were huge protests mm -hmm. about Central America and about nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a million people were in Central Park. And I want to say it was 1982, but I might be wrong. I think... He just wasn't as bad as Trump, though. Yeah. He At least he pretended better. Mm -hmm. He pretended mm -hmm. a lot better. Okay, this is called That Old Time Religion. One, your grandparents. It was something your grandparents offered your parents, but your parents didn't want. I wanted deep down, but were frightened of. Or they plain hated it. It was dark, dark as in dark ages. Old women muttering, old men shaking, wailing even. A term for that in Yiddish, forgotten, for that bobbing up and down while mumbling Hebrew, turning the pages of the prayer book in accordance with some ancient rhythm. It looked like senility, this standing bent over with closed eyes, Lips opening and closing like fish lips, like lapses into senility, into the other side, into the old country, where it was always autumn, where they gathered wood and were afraid, where they whispered to one another, it will get worse. They knew it. Three more months of cold, 
followed by the cruel spring pogrom. Flowers, too, made them afraid for what they portended. There are few words for flowers in Yiddish, few words to differentiate the various species. That's what your mother said, as if an explanation. It is not a springtime language. Your parents didn't want that. As children in the new country, they learned to look up words in a thesaurus. They learned to skip rope. They learned to ask their parents for American money, to hide their heads, to blush at the accents, the syllables too heavy, too much emphasis for this new world. Homemade was too homespun, embarrassing. Ma, don't make me give that to the teacher. Nothing parental was valued, not even praise. The children looked for deception in the old ways and found it. The kosher butcher who mixed the ritually slaughtered with the treif, the rabbi who overcharged his tenant, the scholar who never helped out the family business. See, see, it is all superstition and magic. So they joined a shiny, rational synagogue, big and clean like a museum. They sent you to classes. And like the other kids, you talked during Sunday school, drew pictures, ran away during the break to buy candy. It didn't matter. It wasn't real school. Your neighborhood was Jewish. That was enough. Two, your great-grandparents who stayed wrapped in it. Your great-grandparents, says your mother, clung. And with age, they grew fiercer in their beliefs and more remote. They were giants wrong-headed dragons who muttered and shuffled on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they would not allow themselves light. On the Sabbath, a Jew cannot make a fire, which means a Jew cannot flip a switch or turn a knob. Only in the later years, deigning to answer the phone. Three, you imagine. You learned the holidays, the words, the language, the major holidays at least, but the religion seemed too much like the boys from the neighborhood. They were loud and unaware of their loudness or their history. In college, you go to Quaker meetings, learn pacifism, learn quiet, listening to the inner voice, which is not speaking Hebrew or accented English, but a quiet whisper that has no accent. It is comforting, but colorless. You love the Catholic workers who live in houses of hospitality, so pure, so anarchist and giving, but so Catholic. Four, now of all people, your friends. B has a Torah on her coffee table, a Torah originally from Romania from a synagogue that was closed down. Everyone in her Havara, her group, takes a turn bringing the Torah home, she says. The Havara meets in non-synagogues, people's houses, condo party rooms, Unitarian churches, its members ever-changing, nomadic as the tribes in the desert. There are 12 tribes, most are lost, N says. My family were Levites, we could not own land, he says, we were given the cities. You see the golden cities in his eyes. These Havara members, called Havarim, mix and match the holidays in ways you did not know were allowed. A Seder for Tu Bishvat, the birthday of the trees, during which they eat almonds and fruits in a precise order, according to the thickness of their husks and skins. On Passover, they drip red wine from their index fingers, 
and recall ancient women who danced in the desert, beating their tambourines. After Sabbath meals, they sing traditional utopian songs, and everyone will sit underneath his vine and fig tree, and we will study war no more. At unexplained intervals during the year, they are compelled to sing songs by the East European partisans with gentle Yiddish sounds that speak of grenades, transports, attacks on the Nazis. They form groups to sing to other friends when they buy apartments. Their voices lilt from the corners of each room. They light scented candles, cast to the four directions, burn sage, say Hebrew prayers, brachas they call them, buy mezuzahs to nail next to the door. They offer you honey-sweetened challah, droplets reflecting the light. This exotic culture is and is not your own. It is theirs. They offer it to you like a pomegranate, which you are afraid you do not appreciate. You find only seeds. Bite too hard. Go past the meat of it. Five. He says, it is right to make love on the Sabbath. His finger in your lips, tickling where it is softest, moving slowly, slowly like golden honey. If you opened your eyes, you would see his fingertips shine. This is his Sabbath prayer, repeated weekly, religiously, to whoever will listen, to whoever is there, who stays. 6. She She reads to you from the Song of Songs, slowly in candlelight, from far away, the scent of almonds, cinnamon. You are drowsy. How wonderful are the little sheep, and stands of wheat, and jewels of the religion, nothing to do but play in it, dance in its lightness and mystery. No one ever told you it was this easy to fall into it, to become the dancer inside this religion of magic. You will lose yourself here, in the poetry, deep and soft as a thick, dark Persian rug. It is not what you think, she says abruptly. It is not something to get lost in. You must pull at it like taffy. She tries to convince you it is messy. There are contradictions, evolutions, histories, leaders and followers, schools of thought, wrestling matches with God, pill-pull, the historic debate over the texts. You say, no, it is a chocolate, sweet chocolate, milk chocolate, and close your eyes. She leaves you. Seven, you. You are left with a Hebrew. It looks medieval for some reason. It has secrets. You remember the letter Shin, like a spider, missing some legs, and the abbreviation for Adonai, God. This new old language is tiring. How long does it take for familiarity to grow? Everyone else in this Havara knows the tunes, the variations of tunes. They return from conventions where they learn more tunes. The tunes radiate throughout the United States and Canada. You can't add these tunes to your store from childhood. You stop saying prayers before bed. God was a cross between Father Time and Santa. You sat on his lamp in a store once, but you couldn't have a tree. There were some limits. You could have a bat mitzvah now, R says. It is too late, you say. Everything is too late. It is hopeless and unfair, and you don't believe this God stuff for a moment. Save us, we pray, our vineyards, our granaries, bless us with rain, love our sacrifice, our slain she-goats. 
There is no bridge that links then and now. 8. The Ones Who Pray L tells you that he recites the Amidah every morning, some days the short version very fast. Saying the Amidah, he says, reminds me that there are more things than getting ahead. You are familiar with the Amidah now because it's said at the end of services? You did not know that people read it to themselves in the morning. D says that sometimes the Modet Ani, the prayer in which you welcome the return of your soul upon waking, comes back to her like that. M tells you he is going to celebrate Purim with the Chabads, the Hasidic Jews, because they know how to have a good time, they drink, which is required on the festival of Purim. K invites you to a bar mitzvah. At the synagogue, you meet a religious couple who invite you for lunch. They feed you salmon from a tin, the gray-black fat sitting atop it. They crunch the vertebrae, urge the sweet Mogan David on you. The only true Jews, they say, are the ones who know the precepts and follow them. You cannot pick and choose what's convenient. God wrote the Bible, they say, before the events in it happened. They are not kidding. God is their schoolmaster. They see him with gray beard and staff. They know all the rules. They feel the ubiquity of heavenly cause and effect. All evil, they say, even daily lapses of faith, is punished. God knows everything. You will not accept the Bible as preordained screenplay. Your parents were right to chuck this handed-down superstition. They were right to turn their backs on this blind following of ancient regulations. 9. Your Parents They thought they gave you a good Jewish life, a good Jewish education. They gave you a Jewish society where meaning was hidden, like the treasure in folktales. In a Hasidic folktale, a man travels the world and returns home to find the treasure chest buried in his hearth. This idea is universal, the story found in many cultures. 10. Your Lips Move Your Lips It doesn't matter whether the tune was authorized at a convention. It doesn't matter whether the words were imported from the old country. Move your lips. Hear the echoes. Say something. Anything. Sing. Everything. Sing. I often write in pieces just because I'm not linear. Mm -hmm. And it's been a constant struggle Mm -hmm. almost my whole life of Mm -hmm. not being straight in linear narrative, mm-hmm. not being straight linear <laughs> narrative. Um, so that was one reason. And then I wrote it, I was sort of addressing it to a couple of my friends. Mm. So that's why I have the you. So it's an address to others, but it's also the you becomes a character, a specific mm-hmm. character. Yeah. Are your friends that you're writing to Jewish? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I grew up differently than this. I grew up more religious, mm-hmm. um, and there were times I rebelled against it, but I had a bat mitzvah, and I learned Hebrew and went to Hebrew school and um, mostly did still do the major holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, but this I had in mind people who had less and whose parents were less into it. yeah. Yeah, it's like, I mean, the whole story is so great because it's like, it just shows how like complicated 
everyone's relationship to their religion is specifically through Judaism. Um, and yeah, it makes me wonder, like, uh, since writing this, has your relationship changed um, with your faith? Yeah, I don't even know if you'd call it faith because I don't really believe in it. Yeah, okay. But I like doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have standard things I do. Like Rosh Hashanah is coming up Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And so I have people over for dinner Sunday night. I go to this little tiny, tiny, tiny little synagogue on the day of. And the rabbi wears a utility kilt. Okay. <laughs> and we have drumming uh-huh. and other percussions and he makes jokes and we use a renewal kind of new age mm-hmm. um, prayer book. Wow. And um, then we do this thing that um, has gotten popular in the U.S. maybe for the past 40 years or so mm-hmm. where you go to a body of water and you symbolically throw away your sins. Mm-hmm. So we're very well located about less than a mile t- from Lake Michigan. Yeah. So it's really <laughs> easy to go there and throw away your sins. <laughs> nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. It's very convenient. Yeah. It's very, very convenient. Yeah. 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 What does the drumming symbolize? Just it's drumming. It's you know, just it's like just fun. like people drum, right? Mm-hmm. That's like... Um, there is this Jewish, a smaller Jewish group kind mm-hmm. of within the synagogue that has drumming, religious drumming every month. And I always intend to go and I don't. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one way of connecting to maybe the spirit or yeah. the rhythm. I don't want to say the rhythm of life because that sounds kind of <laughs> kind of dumb, mm-hmm. um, like a cliche. And I know there's some musical that has a song, The Rhythm of Life, but I can't think what it is. Hmm. Um, I don't know. People just started drumming, what, in the yeah. 80s or 90s and uh-huh. had drum circles. And it's a way to connect with people. And mm-hmm. it, and like you said, it's fun. Yeah, it really totally is fun. fun. To <laughs> and yeah. to have um, – and you can put your drum down and then you can go get – you know, a tambourine, and then you can go get the maracas. And mm-hmm. so it's just another way of making sound and being connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so that's so fun. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, your story also, like, explores, like, just how other members of your religion can be like, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to do this way or right. this. Like, um, like uh I don't know, do you want to speak more on that or like just like what your experience is in in your religion? Like do you feel you just kind of have to learn to like just let others be and respect it and then people that want to lecture how to do it, you just kind of have to ignore them or? (laughs) I really, really wanted to be invited for a weekend Mm -hmm. for Shabbat at somebody's house who was very religious. I just wanted to see what that was like. And I went to this yeshiva, this rabbi school in Mm -hmm. north of the city because I was looking something up in their library. And then I met someone and then they invited me. And it was like, oh, great, they invited me. (laughs) So um, and they were really religious. Like she thought she had done something wrong. That's why she couldn't have kids. Oh, okay. And like they tear their toilet paper before the Sabbath because you can't do any work at all on the Sabbath. Oh, Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's so you just have to tear part. the right amount of toilet yeah. paper, right? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and um, so it was interesting. And then 
Saturday night, I think they told me, somebody there told me I mm-hmm. wasn't really Jewish because I didn't believe everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of upset me. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then, um, but I had asked to be part of, to join this community temporarily. Mm-hmm. And then it was that, sat- it was a Saturday night is, is when Sabbath ends. And that's when you can use the phone. But I didn't realize you can't use the phone right at sunset. You have to wait till three stars come out. Oh, So there's this friend I was supposed to get together with. And mm-hmm. it's like, I can't call him. I can't call him because the three stars aren't out yet. Yeah. Know, and I can't drive home. <laughs> so that made me nervous. So I don't, I think Judaism is, is just more complicated than other religions. And mm-hmm. people who are part of other religions can say that's wrong. But... Um, there's just a, 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 there's a tradition, like if you don't like this synagogue, you start another one. Mm-hmm. If you don't like this group, this Orthodox, we start the reform. And if you don't like the reform or the Orthodox, you start a conservative. And if you don't like either of those, you have reconstruction. And then if you don't like reconstruction, you have renewal. Mm-hmm. And you can have a feminist thing and you can have a Buddhist thing. And a lot of Jews are Buddhists and mm-hmm. they call them Jew-boos. <laughs> and... Um, so there is just, in the U.S., there's a smorgasbord of you can go here for a while, you can go there for a while, mm-hmm. and maybe people in every group are critical of people in the yeah. other groups, mm-hmm. you know? Do you find it to, like, people in their practice to be more fluid, or are some people, like, they find their group and they stay? Um, some people, I think, I'm thinking mostly about the very orthodox, mm-hmm. especially if there are some, there's a phrase called Baal Teshuvim, mm-hmm. and it means the ones who return. And that's the name for people who were not very religious, and then they return to the religion. Mm. And they return to it really vehemently. Okay. And they're very, very strict. And um, some of those people, I know one person wrote a book, I, Leah, can't think of her last name. Um, uh, let me go, just go back. So there are several people who have come out of that community mm-hmm. who have become secular. Okay. And then there are people who are secular who become part of that community. Interesting. So I think there is an ebb and flow. Yeah. Um, I just came back from a Jewish feminist conference in Serbia, which is really for European Jewish women. Mm-hmm. And what... I realize from this conference and other conferences they've had is that, first of all, the U.S. is really big, mm-hmm. and there are lots of different ways of being Jewish. And you can be, every month you can be a different kind of Jewish if you want. Nobody's <laughs> going to do anything. Maybe your family will be confused. But in Yugoslavia, where so many people were killed in the mm-hmm. Holocaust, and other places, you know, Poland, yeah. Hungary, mm-hmm. You know, so many people were killed in the Holocaust. There was like very little left. And what's going on right now in Yugoslavia is um, there are a couple communities and they have an Orthodox rabbi, but the people who survived and have had a couple more generations, they're from mixed marriages and mm. they don't feel like being Orthodox. or uh-huh. So they're trying to figure out how they can find something meaningful. Yeah. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You you have a tendency, I think, when you're young to think that, like, whatever you grew up with is normal, mm-hmm. and then you find out, no, 
Yeah. And then it's very different. Yeah, your family's history can color, you know, your perspective on your life or religion or your practice too. So Yeah. And in the in the places that were behind what we used to call the Iron Curtain, Mm -hmm. you know, there first of all, there weren't that many Jews left in most of these places. And second of all, you were in the atheist state. Mm. So everybody was the same. Nobody had a religion. You were yeah. just a good communist. <laughs> so then 1989, 30 years ago, okay, now you can be religious, but do you want to be? And yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. Or wow. do you want to just leave and go yeah. somewhere else? Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. Just thinking like how some people are born and you're like going to church before you even realize like what it even means and then people that are born without that and then as an adult are asked like do you want to be religious it's very interesting because i think a lot of people that maybe are born into it like just believe it before even knowing it and then have that rebellion stage Mm -hmm. first like someone maybe not having that rebellion stage is is interesting to me yeah yeah, mm-hmm. and my my next door neighbors are the husband is Jewish and the wife is Catholic, and one of their sons decided when he was like ten he wanted to be Jewish. Uh huh. And they said, "All right, you know." <laughs> so they joined yeah. a synagogue wow. and they do Christmas yeah. and Jewish holidays, and mm-hmm. he's going to be bar mitzvahed. Wow! But it's just because the kid decided. Yeah, yeah, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's, I mean, there's a word for Catholics, you know, the lapsed Catholic, mm, right? Yeah, right. Um, and I don't know if you can be, I guess you can be a lapsed Methodist or you can be a lapsed yeah. anything, right? Sure. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> but I'm sure, you know, I don't think too many religions would be upset for people wanting to come back or something. I don't know. or. Right. Later. Yeah. Right. And then you look at places like Italy and France that have lots mm-hmm. of Catholics mm-hmm. and they have very low birth rates. Mm-hmm. So they're not following yeah. all the precepts on birth control. True, true. Or else they're just not having sex, which I don't <laughs> yeah. think that. No, I don't think yeah. I don't think Maybe. so. I don't know. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so it seems like a lot of your personal experiences um, influence your writing. Do you do you find that to be the case? Um, I do. I've been working, though, on a novel mm-hmm. probably since before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And um, it's been really hard because mm-hmm. I've been making up the characters. Okay. And that can be really hard for me. Sure. Yeah. Know? And then um, I don't want to have like, it's not like I don't want to be conventional, but I just am not naturally a conventional mm-hmm. storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so my... One friend in particular who's a novelist has been saying, you need to have scenes. They need to be talking to each other. And it's like, eh, I don't care what this Mexican restaurant looks like. Mm, right. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's not. And it's like, do you go against your weaknesses? Mm-hmm. Or do you just kind of say, all right, at this point I've had experience. I don't have to do what I'm supposed to do. I can just yeah. do it my own way. <laughs> so I think that's always a problem in yeah. life. Like, do you, when, let me say it a different way. When I came home from college, I think the first time a friend of mine said, I don't know my strengths from my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I just keep thinking of that. 
you know, is (laughs) like this nonlinear stuff, a strength or a weakness. If it's Mm -hmm. a weakness, then I should push against it. If it's a strength, Mm -hmm. I should just go with it. Yeah. And I think that applies to everything almost in life. Yeah, definitely. And like, it seems to me, it seems impossible to really know what your strengths or weaknesses are. You know, sure, you could have other people point it out to you. But yeah, you know, I don't know. And then also, like, we were talking about how fluid being how one could be fluid in their religious practice and how it can serve you at different times in your life. I'm sure Mm -hmm. like writing, you know, I'm sure there's times where you probably find strength in being like, I'm not a linear writer. And then Mm -hmm. other times where you feel, I don't know, at sea. (laughs) Right. If you're not following Mm -hmm. the pattern, yeah, then you have to make your own pattern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right now I'm reading um, Ben Fold's like autobiography. He's a musician. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how musicians commonly like after they've had like two great albums or whatever and they're working on their next album, they tend to want to like go against like song structure and do uh, more like and that's like where progressive rock and like these crazy concept albums come from. And um in his book, he talked about how, like, in his third album, he's trying to do that, like, just take music ideas and turn it into, like, huge, long songs. And then mm-hmm. it, it hit a point where someone's like, can you please just go back and write, like, a standard strong song structure? And then, like, when he did that, after being stubborn and wanting to be, like, innovative, he was like, oh, actually, right now I need the structure, you know? So I, right. sometimes it's like... as it's, Silly as it sounds, like going back to basics is like, oh, wait, it's helping me in this moment. And then now I can rebel against it again, you know. Right. And the word stubborn is really important because you Mm -hmm. wonder, am I being stubborn or am I being true to myself? Yeah. I feel like that's such a hard question. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, Is there anything you want to plug or do you want to tell people where they can find your work? Well, um, what I've read is from a book called The Sweetheart is In. And you have to read the title story to figure out exactly who the sweetheart is. Um, And that's published by Northwestern University Press, and it's still around. And I have another book called Holocaust Girls, which is a book of essays. And I have a book that is kind of a diary or a chronicle called The Adventures of Cancer Bitch, which is about my breast cancer adventures. And I'm an editor of a magazine called Another Chicago Magazine. And it's been online for a couple years. And it's www.anotherchicagomagazine.net. And if you're a writer or an artist or an audio visual maker of things, uh, check us out because we are accepting work. And right now we're looking for work having to do with race, riot, rebellion, revolution, because um, 400 years ago, slavery began in what became the U.S., and uh, 100 years ago, there were the Chicago race riots, and throughout the U.S., there were, there were riots called the Red Summer, where white terrorists um, were attacking African Americans in cities throughout the country. So um, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. This has been great.
Stories Been Shorter is produced by Jeremy Schmidt and hosted by me, Cassie Jerkins. Hi folks, Sean Watkins here. I'm here to tell you about my podcast slash album called This Is Who We Are. That's right, it's a podcast and a record, all rolled into one. Each episode features one song off the record, paired up with a conversation with a guest who is related to that song in some way. Guests include Jackson Brown, Inara George, Kate Micucci, and the conversations aren't about these songs specifically. The songs just serve as sort of a topical springboard that hopefully will lend a little context to this new album of mine. Sort of like a modern day version of Liner Notes, only much more personal. The podcast and the album are both called This Is Who We Are. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.